team here. Um, and uh, if you didn't know, that was Jazz. Jazz has just joined the star team here. You didn't introduce yourself, Jazz. There you go. So, yeah, brilliant. But it's, it's great that you're here this morning with us. So if you're a guest or a visitor, do stick around after the meeting. We have tea and coffee afterwards, and it'd be great to talk to you. Um, I'm starting, well, we're doing a two, two weeks now in Advent. So we finished our series on Hebrews last week, and today I'm going to be speaking on the first of two talks about Advent. And I was reflecting this week about what to speak on, and it's funny because I'm actually going to talk about Isaiah 9, and uh, we've already had this twice already. Nobody knew that I was speaking on this today. So normally when that happens, it means that we think that God is speaking to us, yeah, because three people say the same thing, it's, you start to think, oh, maybe there's a connection between these things. Um, but anyway, I was thinking about what to speak on, and I was thinking about the fact about what I like and dislike about winter. So I actually quite like winter in some ways. I like getting up uh, and going out for a cold walk, you know, when you're all wrapped up warm, and then you come home and you have a hot drink. I particularly like that hot drink if it's mulled wine. Okay, so I, I like a nice cup of mulled wine on a, on a cold winter's day. Um, I do enjoy that, and I enjoy, I enjoy the kind of like, you know, you get the, when you breathe and it looks like you're smoking a cigarette because it puffs out. You know what you used to do as a child? You used to walk around going, everywhere. I like, I like that. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's nice, and I like that kind of refreshment of, uh, of winter. But at the same time, I, I hate the darkness. So I hate the really, really long nights and the really short days. I just don't like it. And I also just have been freezing cold this week. Now, I'm not a cold person. Claire, my wife, is a cold person, and uh, she's always wanted to put the heating on, even in July. Um, <laughs> if it's cold enough, the heating goes on. That's, that's what she's just said. Um, and we live in a, we, our bedroom's a, a loft conversion, and so it's really cold in our bedroom, so much so that when you get up to go to the shower in the morning, you literally run out of bed and get in the shower as quickly as possible just to try and get warm. And it's kind of like, at winter, there's this sort of almost oppressive kind of atmosphere that starts to fall on you. And it, and it feels like it's a bit of drudgery that takes place. And what we do is we set our hopes and attention on Christmas. We, we first of all, we kind of look forward to this day and we, we live towards it. And then after Christmas, we go, oh, is that it done? And, and then the new year. And then we still realize we're still in winter for another three or four months. And you're like, oh, it's freezing. When are the, when's the nights going to get shorter? When are we going to be able to sit outside again? And, and that's the kind of feeling that you get. In fact, there's a, a day three weeks into January called Blue Monday, which is apparently the most depressing day of the year. And I think on that day, it's because everybody realizes they've failed all of their New Year's resolutions already. And, and, and they know that they've still got two months of sitting in the cold with the heating on and the energy prices rising. Um, but worse than that, at the moment, we've got this whole kind of thing looming over us of coronavirus. And I remember last year, Everybody was really looking forward to Christmas. Yeah, I get to spend Christmas with my family and my friends. And then it got taken away from us. And then this year, again, we've got now this new threat of, I can't say it, Omicron. It sounds like a transformer. Um, we've got this new threat of, of a new variant. And, and, so, and there is that concern in us. And I know that many of us are concerned, and rightly so, if we've, if we've got background health concerns about this. And so we're walking into winter again with this kind of sense of unknowing over us, this sense of darkness, this sense of, uh, of kind of there's an opaqueness about it. It's like when you get into your car on a winter's morning and you look through the glass and it's frosted. It feels a little bit like that. And that feeling, if you could bottle that feeling, is I think how the Israelites felt at the end of the Old Testament. So the Bible's in two parts. It's in old and new. And the Old Testament tells the story of the Israelites. And it actually starts quite well for the Israelites in some ways. They're, they're, they're prisoners in, in, in the land of Egypt, but they get freed. 
So if you know the story of, of Moses, he, he, God uses him to free the people and they get rescued. They go through the, the Red Sea and the sea gets parted and they travel through the wilderness for 40 years and then they end up in this place called the Promised Land. And it's a place that has everything that has been promised to them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That means that it's fertile. It means that they've got crops and that, that they can kind of have their own space. And God gives them this space. And it all looks really good for them at the start. It doesn't look like winter at all. It looks like spring and summer. And, and, and they set about it. But then they, they start looking around and they look at all the nations around them. And they see that they've all got kings. And they say to God, God, why have all the other nations got kings? We want a king just like everybody else. It's kind of like when you're at school and you look around and everybody else has got a pair of trainers that you want. And this is why I'm wearing a pair of trainers that everybody would want today, right? This is what a nice pair of trainers looks like. Now, when you were at school and you'd look around and you'd see everybody else's nice trainers, you'd go to your parents and say, I want a pair of trainers just like everybody else. But for me, I always got a pair of Knicks rather than Nike, okay? But you always wanted a pair, you wanted to be like everybody else and fit in. And that's what happened with the people of Israel. They just wanted to fit in with everybody else. So they asked God for a king. And so God gives them what they want. And God gives them a tall, handsome guy called Saul who looks nothing like me. And he's a military leader over the nation of Israel. But he doesn't have God's heart. He doesn't lead the way that God would lead. And it kind of goes wrong for him. And so God then sends David. And David does have God's heart. He leads with righteousness and justice. He's a good king. But even this good king, he fails. He, he sees a woman uh, having a bath and he thinks, cool, she's a bit nice. And um, he ends up having sex with her and ends up trying to cover it up by killing her husband. So he's like this, apparently this really good king, yeah? But even he kind of messes up. And he's this pinnacle for Israel, this pinnacle king. And they all go, oh, David, what a great king he was. And from David, it kind of starts to spiral downwards, year after year, king after king, generation after generation. And it gradually gets down into this. It's almost like you're staring into an abyss of darkness. Um, if you read, if you want to spend time reading the story of all these different kings, you can find them in, in, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament. It tells the story of how this, this nation, Israel, gradually descended into darkness. Now, there are a few high points along the way as a king turns up who looks a little bit more like David. But gradually, it just descends into darkness. And along this journey, also what happens is, is that the nation of Israel, it gets so bad that they actually war against themselves. And imagine like Scotland and England, Israel gets split in two. There becomes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah and the northern kingdom is called Israel. And they're at war. They end up at war with one another. And in the middle of all this, there is a king who typifies this darkness that I wanted to talk about and, 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 and what happens with the nation. There's this king who turns up, and his name's Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is like, sorry, this is, I hope I'm not going to be too depressing here. Ahaz is like, is the worst king you could possibly think of. He's horrible. He's literally awful. Let me just explain to you what he does. So he, he's the, the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And he finds out that Israel and Aram, which is another country nearby, are going to attack Judah. And he's frightened and he's scared. Now, what he should do in that moment as a king of Judah is he should go to the temple in Jerusalem and consult God and say, God, please help us. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he goes to the, the biggest power in the region, which are the Assyrians at the time, the Assyrian Empire. And he goes to their king, who's a guy called, I can't ever say his name right, so don't have a go at me if I get this wrong, Tilgath-Pileser. 
And he goes to Tilgath Pilliser, and he says, mate, you've got to help me out. Like, I need your help here. These guys are going to come and attack me. I need your help. And, and in order to do that, what he says to him is, you are, I am yours. King of Assyria, I am yours. We will become a vassal state for you. That means we'll do whatever you say. And in order for him to get this transaction over the line with this other nation, he does something really bad. He strips the temple in Jerusalem out of all of its gold and silver. And he hands it to the king of Assyria. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is symbolic of something. It's symbolic of the relationship that God has between his people, the Israelites. And so what... Ahaz does is he strips the temple out. It's almost like he's kind of abandoning God's ways and he hands it all over to the king of Assyria and he says, I'm going to serve you. And worse still, actually, what he does when he's in Assyria is he sees a temple in Damascus and he he sees this temple and he likes the look of it. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and he gets one of the priests in Jerusalem to turn the temple in Jerusalem into the temple that he's seen in, in, in Damascus. And so in doing so, he actually turns everybody's worship to the worship of other gods. This king is a really bad king. He's a bad king for two reasons. First of all, we have to remember, see, he's a king. He's got people that he's leading. It's not just about him being a bad person. It's about the fact that he leads people into that wickedness with him. What he does is he actually enslaves all of the people of Judah because he offers them over to the king of Assyria. They become effectively his captors. They become his people. And secondly, he leads his people into spiritual blindness. He leads them after other gods. He changes the temple worship to worship other gods. It says that he sets up shrines and idols all across Judah. It says this in in, in either 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. And amongst all of this, he does something even worse. I mean, this is all bad enough, right? But let me just show you the, 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 the level of his wickedness and his darkness. And this makes me sad even thinking about it. He takes his own children outside the gates of Jerusalem, and, he, and he, he burns them at the stake to offer them as a sacrifice to an unknown god that we don't know about. And this place that he takes them to is called the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom ends up becoming a place that the Israelites see as cursed. And when Jesus talks about hell in Matthew, if you read Matthew, there's lots of allusions to this place. The Valley of Hinnom is, by that point, which is 700 years later, is known as a place called Gehenna. When Jesus talks about hell, he points to Gehenna, which is outside Jerusalem, and says, hell is like this. It's a place that nobody wants to go to. It's a place that's cursed. And why was that place cursed like that? It was because because people like Ahaz taking their children and burning them at the stake. Isn't that awful? Like This guy was just awful. But the thing is, it's not just that he's awful. He led his people into darkness. He led them into captivity. Now, God being God and God loving his people doesn't like this. And so he sends the prophet Isaiah to speak to Ahaz about his evil ways. And he says to him, look, I'm going to send a sign to you that I'm going to, I'm going to come against you and I'm going to punish you. And the sign is this, and you can read it in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This isn't a positive sign. Look, a young woman is with child and she shall bear a son and she shall name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. I am going to be with you, says God, to Ahaz, and I'm going to bring punishment on you for the way that you've abandoned me and you've led my people into darkness. And then what we see in chapter 8, if you carry on reading Isaiah, is that that prophecy is fulfilled straight away. Isaiah goes and finds a prophetess. He has sex with her. She conceives a child. And they call the child, this is my favorite name in the whole Bible, Mahashalel Hashbaz. Get that on your birth certificate. 
Imagine, imagine phoning up the DVLA. Hi, my name's Maharshal El-Hashbaz. Maharshal El-Hashbaz. This, this uh, child is born, and, and Maharshal El-Hashbaz means quick to the plunder. You see, what God's going to do is he's going to use Assyria, the nation that Ahaz has gone to, to bring punishment on Judah. Maharshal El-Hashbaz is the, the first fulfillment of this sign, of this prophecy. But then Isaiah carries on. And all of a sudden, he starts speaking, and it's definitely not talking about this child. He definitely starts talking about somebody else. Let me read you what it says in chapter 9. We've heard it twice already today. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder, for the yoke of their burden and the bar of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of tramp tramping warriors and the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child has been born, a son given to us. Authority rests on his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time on and forevermore. So in the midst of this incredibly dark moment in Israel's history, God speaks through Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies that there's going to be a king who turns up who's going to be almost the exact opposite of Ahaz. He's going to be completely different. But this king is a very strange king, if you read the text. He's a son of somebody. So whose son is he? We don't see it. It doesn't say, and he's going to be the son of X or Y or Z. He is the son of somebody. And he gets called something that Isaiah uses a lot in, his, in, in the book of Isaiah, mighty God. When Isaiah uses the words mighty God, he's referring to the God of Israel, who's known as Yahweh. He's referring to this God. But yet here he says that this king is going to be called mighty God. Then the story carries on, and I won't go into the detail about what happens with Ahaz. And then he has a son. Ahaz has a son called Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the better kings. He does right before the eyes of God. But then just 100 years later, it's another kingdom at this point. The Assyrians have gone off the scene, and it's another kingdom turn up, the Babylonians. And at this point, they end up taking the Israelites into captivity, and Israel is no more. And then, you know, this, the Boney M song by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept and we remembered Zion. That's where they end up. They end up in slavery in another nation. They end up in darkness and hurt and pain. And they end up being captors to other people. And all this time when this is going on, they're looking back at the prophecies about somebody who's going to turn up. Somebody who's going to come and, and free their nation from the bondage of the captors around them. And they look at Isaiah 9 and they, they're waiting for this Messiah to come. And 700 years go by. And in the 700 years... This text that we've just read was originally written in Hebrew. And during this 700 years, about 200 years before the birth of Jesus, the text is written into Greek. And when the text gets written into Greek, chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah, which says in the, in the Hebrew text, a young woman, this text gets changed into a virgin. It's like God is speaking and speaking to the, the scribes who are translating the text. Because then what happens is, is as we know the story, don't we? A virgin conceives a child completely miraculously and gives birth to this child in the place that David, King David that I spoke about earlier, was born. And this child is Jesus. 
And then when Jesus starts his ministry, people start to have questions about Jesus because Jesus doesn't seem to fit what their expectations were. They were waiting for like a military ruler to come, somebody who's going to free them from the hand of their oppressors. Because as I said, they were, they were at the hand of the Babylonians. But by the time Jesus is born, there's another nation that's over, over, overruling them. It's the Romans this time. They're back in Jerusalem, the Jews are at this point in time, but now it's the Romans who have got sort of dominion and rule over them. And they were, so they were expecting Jesus to turn up and, 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 and set them free from this, this rule. And it gets to the point where Jesus' own cousin, John, who gets imprisoned, is starting to have doubts about whether Jesus is actually the person who comes up in Isaiah chapter 9. And so he says to Jesus, he's in prison at the time, and he sends one of his disciples as a messenger to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? This is in Matthew 11. Or should we wait for another? Are you, are you the one who's to come? I've got my doubts now, Jesus. Or should we wait for somebody else to turn up? Because it doesn't seem to me like you're going to overthrow the Romans. It doesn't seem to me like you're going to take up a throne. So what, what's going on here? And Jesus sends back to him the message this. This is the message. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have good news brought to them. You see, the problem is, is that John has missed the point of what the wonderful counsellor, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God has come to do. You see, they all thought, a lot of the Israelites thought, that the Jews thought in, in Jerusalem at that time, particularly a group called the Zealots, they all thought that the Messiah was going to come and take a throne in Jerusalem. They thought that he was just going to come and overthrow the power that was holding them at the time. But they didn't realise that his, his, his duty was much bigger than that. His plan was much bigger than that. You see, the thing is, is that Jesus' plan, God's plan, isn't just to overthrow one earthly power. It's to overthrow every power of darkness. It isn't just to overthrow one king. It's to overthrow any king who would set themselves up against the living God. You see, the, the thing about all of this is, is that we're all a little bit like Ahaz. We're all a little bit like Ahaz. I said how Ahaz is wicked and um, rebelled against God, but we all do this. We all rebel against God. We all do it. We all live lives that, that what we want to do is we just want to do what we want to do. This is what Ahaz's thing was. He didn't trust God and he just wanted to do what he wanted to do. And we all can be spiritually blind. We lead ourselves towards spiritual blindness, just like how Ahaz led the people towards spiritual blindness. We can all lead ourselves towards spiritual blindness. And we can end up causing oppression to ourselves as we lead ourselves into this way. But there's also another who does it over us, and that's Satan. And Satan is like, is like Ahaz, but like even worse than Ahaz, because Satan looks to lead all people away from God. Satan is God's enemy. And when Jesus comes, Jesus comes to defeat our rebellion against God and the rebeller against God, Satan himself. So when Jesus comes, he doesn't come to overthrow one power. He comes to overthrow every single power and make them subject to himself. And the Bible now says that he now is seated on, on a heaven's throne and he reigns forevermore. He's taken the seat that Isaiah 9 said he was going to take. He's taken a seat of authority over everything. And he's now ruling with righteousness and justice. Jesus comes to change the whole of creation. He comes to bring it in line with the way of God. You see, whilst we're all like Ahaz, Jesus has come that we might have a king who can lead us away from oppression and into freedom. Jesus comes that, that we might have a king who leads us from darkness into light. 
Now, there's another text. You know, actually, Isaiah is one of the most quoted writers in the New Testament. So the New Testament, the books in the New Testament, all quote Isaiah. Isaiah is quoted 411 times in the New Testament. 411 times. They must have thought he was pretty significant to quote him 411 times. Jesus actually picks another text from Isaiah and claims it about himself. And it says this. It's from chapter 61. The Lord has anointed me. He sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and release the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland of, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to the display of his glory. Jesus says that he's coming to free us from captivity, to free us from darkness, to free us from the slavery and rebellion that we have against God. Jesus says, I am the person who's come to do this. And he's not just the person who came to do this 2,000 years ago. He's the person who's come to do it today. You see, that verse that was originally written about Mahashal el-Hashbaz is actually, in a bigger sense, about Jesus, Emmanuel. We've said it already this morning, Emmanuel. It means God with us. God with us. And Jesus isn't just the God who was with us. Jesus is the God with us today. And he comes to turn your dark into light. He comes to turn your mourning into joy. He comes to turn your oppression into liberty, into freedom. Jesus comes to do that in your life today. That's the wonder of Christmas. When we celebrate Christmas as Christians, we're celebrating the one who has come to, to, to free us from all darkness. We're celebrating the one who's come to free us from the winter that is eternal in us, the separation and rebellion from God. Now, as I was preparing this today, and thinking about how difficult this season is, I felt God saying to me that he wants to just come and bring a bit of liberty to you today if you're feeling like you're entrapped or something. It might be just you've got yourself into a, a, a thought pattern at this point in the year where you're like I was talking about at the start. Everything feels dark. Everything feels negative. Everything feels you're feeling disillusioned with everything. Jesus wants to come and bring freedom to you today. Maybe you're feeling joyless today. Maybe you're just feeling sorrow. Maybe you're feeling fear about the future. Because Ahaz felt fear about the future, but he didn't go to God. He went to somebody else. Maybe you're feeling fear about the future. Jesus wants to free you from that fear today and give you faith. And so as we close today, I just want, if, if that's you, and it might not be you, and that's absolutely fine, but if it is you, we're all going to close our eyes. And if it's you, just put your hands out to him and receive, and I'm going to pray a prayer over you. Okay, because... If you're feeling like you're in a trapped situation, Jesus comes today to bring liberty to you. He comes today to bring freedom to you. He comes today to bring a new release to you today. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's close in prayer, shall we? So if you're feeling oppressed, if you're feeling dark, if you're feeling like uh, the world is closed in on you, if you're feeling like you're living life in the shadows, like you're under the, the hand of an oppressor, Jesus comes today to bring liberty to you. He comes today to bring freedom to you. That's why he came into the world, to free us from the hand of the oppressor. Jesus is a better king than Ahaz ever, ever could be, because he's the living one. 
So if it's you, if you, if you, if you just want to, I'm not, I've got my eyes closed, so I might even know it's you, but if you just want to put your hands out to God as just a, a, a sign of, of receiving something from him, as saying, God, actually, right at this moment, I just want to receive from you, and I'll just pray for you. Jesus, I, I thank you that you came and you proclaimed liberty for the captives, that those walking in darkness saw a great light, because you came and you brought light where there was only captivity to sin and shame. Jesus, I thank you that you are now seated on heaven's throne. As we learn in Hebrews, you're seated at the right hand of the Father on the majesty on high and you're ever interceding for us. Jesus, I pray right now by your spirit, God with us here today, that if anybody is feeling a sense of despair, if anybody is feeling a sense of death, a sense of darkness, a sense of joylessness, a sense of mourning. I pray right now, Jesus, that your love would just come and just invade their heart and their mind. Jesus, I pray right now that your mercy would just come and just rest upon them, that they might know your grace and your joy right now. Jesus, I I thank you that you come to turn sorrow into joy, mourning into not not just stopping crying, but dancing. Jesus, I thank you that you come to bring freedom where there's captivity. And so we speak freedom in the name of Jesus, the great liberator, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, the one who sits on heaven's throne. We speak liberty today in the name of Jesus over the lives of people here who are feeling encaptured by it. Holy Spirit, We thank you that we get to celebrate Christmas. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we get to celebrate the joy and the wonder of Christ coming into the world. And we sing songs like, joy to the world. Lord, I pray this Christmas, when we have those dark days, when we have those moments and we're questioning what is going on, Jesus, that you would come to us by your spirit and reside in us and enable us to see who you are and what you've done. Amen.